summer loving. Happened so fast. <laughs> we missed karaoke the other night with Students Learn, Students Vote. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm Kara Whaley, Associate Director of the Madison Center. And here with me this morning is Dr. Abe Goldberg. A singing Dr. Abe Goldberg, because I also missed karaoke, but that is not to say that we can't bring karaoke to our listeners through our podcast. Also, apparently, we're going to be doing some pole dancing this year. P-O-L-L dancing. Thank you for spelling that out. (laughs) We are joined on this episode by Dr. Elizabeth Benyon at Indiana University in South Bend. She's a professor in the Department of Political Science and has been there since 1999. She teaches American politics with an emphasis on political behavior. And she's the founding director of Indiana University South Bend's American Democracy Project, serving in that capacity as director of ADP for 15 years, so since ADP's founding. Um, She's also the host of WNIT's live weekly television program, Politically Speaking. Welcome, Dr. Benyon. Thank you. We're also joined this morning by Andrew Lardy, who oversees election engagement at Bowdoin College and is associate director at the Joseph McKean Center for the Common Good. I want to start by um, asking um, Elizabeth Benyon about a book that came out not that long ago uh, that you were involved in creating. Uh, called Teaching Civic Engagement Across the Disciplines. Um, this was part of the American Political Science Association that you worked on uh, with several colleagues. And I just wonder if you could sort of speak to that project as well as, um, I, I, I believe it was published in 2017, and just kind of what's happened since 2017 in the release of that book. Well, one of the things that's interesting about the discipline of political science is that it really was founded with an idea that the discipline would create citizens for democracy and would be focused on the public good in much the way I just heard a panel about student affairs having those same roots and being about democratic engagement, about teaching people how to engage in our democracy. Unfortunately, the discipline strayed from those roots pretty severely during the behavioral revolution where we became a discipline largely focused on statistical modeling and predictions of behavior as distant neutral observers, right? And rather than having a normative agenda to actually educate people for democracy and strengthen democracies uh, throughout the world. And so what's interesting is thinking about how political science can re-engage in this citizen engagement, civic engagement movement, and the American Political Science Association over the last few years with the publication first of teaching civic engagement from student to active citizen, and then with this later book about teaching engagement across the disciplines, uh, is really trying to reassert itself as being a central player in this civic engagement and political engagement movement. We're concerned that the politics not get dropped when we talk about civic engagement. And that's been something that the American Democracy Project has always been focused on too. Uh, that yes, volunteerism is good, but let's look at the underlying policies that cause so much one-on-one volunteerism and to be needed. And so it's a great fit and more political scientists are starting to realize that this may be part of what our discipline should do. And several of us just met in Denton, Texas last week 
to talk about reimagining and reinventing the political science major and to think about whether we should go back to those roots, I would argue yes, <laughs> to make preparing citizens for democracy uh, part of our, not just part of our discipline, but really be a major learning objective across the country. And, and this book, by the way, is um, Teaching Civic Engagement Across the Disciplines. It's, it's a free download. Often what we find is when a professor or a student affairs professional or a high school teacher thinks about trying to educate for democracy, they want to do it, but they're not sure how. And often in disciplines outside of political science, people say, well, maybe political science or sociology can do that. I'm not sure how I would do that in my English right. class. Right. Uh, and so this is something where we felt it was really important to have examples across the disciplines so that people can have concrete ideas about how other people are doing this, not just in subfields across political science, but in disciplines outside of our own. And you have math professors and composition professors and speech professors who are doing this kind of work, as well as folks in the fine arts, and really thinking about how their students can get engaged to make a difference and contribute to the public good. Andrew, you're in a very different context, a, a different location, a smaller liberal arts college. Um, I wonder how you see this work being implemented across disciplines where you are um, and, and, and how that has changed or where you see it going. Let me also add that Andrew is a biologist by training, so actually comes to this work from a different discipline, which, is, which makes his work all that much more impactful because he can speak and translate um, you know, across disciplinary approaches. Yeah, that's right. And I think actually on our campus what you see is the, many of the most uh, engaged scholars on our campus are in the natural sciences who recognize the civic purposes of their disciplines and recognize that right now they, are, they feel a degree of, um, uh, they feel a degree of threat to their disciplines and to the integrity of their disciplines in the political arena that they understand that it is time for scientists to be clear with the public about what science does and how it's valuable so that that is not going to, their messages and, the, and the, the, their findings aren't going to be muddied by people with a different kind of, with a political agenda that would like to subvert the, the, the ethics of science. So scientists are in some ways leading the way on our campus in being uh, publicly engaged. Uh, and you know, I think at Bowdoin, the, the work is more grassroots. It's more of a small network of faculty learning from one another because the institutional supports haven't yet fallen into place to have faculty recognize um, that helping students understand the civic implications and the civic value of the discipline are, should be an integral piece of how we approach every departmental curriculum and how we approach individual course syllabi. So that's evolving organically through a network of folks who are leading the way for their peers. And Elizabeth, you are actually working on some publications around national studies that you've been doing about student engagement. I wonder if you can share anything about your findings, just linking more broadly outside of the context of Indiana 
and Maine, <laughs> um, you know, what you're finding in terms of engagement more broadly. Sure. So one of the things that I have done over the last few years is conduct randomized field experiment on different voter engagement efforts on college campuses across the country. So we'll look at dozens of campuses, hundreds of thousands of students for each study, and consider what happens if you send them all emails inviting them to register to vote? Well, turns out not much. <laughs> what if you link that directly to an online voter system so states actually make it possible to register online so they don't have to figure out how to download a form, find a stamp, send it in, reduce the logistic uh, burden? You do get a slightly and statistically significant increase, but we're talking about very marginal returns. So when you're talking about a 1% bump across hundreds of thousands of students, you know, it still might be worth doing because it's so easy to do, but it definitely cannot replace face-to-face -face outreach and efforts with our students. And so we also studied classrooms and looked randomly uh, to assign a professor, a peer, or no presentation at all uh, across each of these ASCU-type institutions where professors teach 3-3 loads, so it's perfect for a study. The computer picks which class gets which treatment, and we find that not only are they more likely to show up on the voter files and be registered, but also to cast a vote. So that face-to-face -face effort, that getting it in the classroom, even at 10 minutes a year, can make a significant difference. And, and then what we're looking at is how do student affairs come into this? And so my colleague Sheree Strawn and I did a national survey of student leaders and found that there are some missed opportunities here where people are doing things in these groups that matter, but they're not translating that into political leadership. And that's particularly true for sorority presidents versus fraternity presidents, where the fraternity leaders are saying, yes, we're using Robert Rules of Order. We are referring to our bylaws. We are giving speeches to talk about our mission. We're working with the state and national chapters, and next I'm gonna go into political leadership and use these skills. And the women are doing some of these same things, but just like in the general population are saying, oh no, I could never see myself as a political leader. Oh, I don't have the skills necessary. I don't have the interest. And so there's a problem here that we're not taking seriously this gap or doing anything to address it. We also see overall on our campuses that although people who go to college are slightly more likely to vote after their college attendance, their rates of other kinds of political participation is actually slightly depressed. And so there's more we can do in the academic side and in the student affairs side to really make a difference in students' lives as we're serious about the future of the republic. And John Dewey's insight that democracy is born anew every generation and education is its midwife. Well, I say bring on the midwives. Yeah, so in the co-curricular side, I think what's exciting is that uh, colleges are collaborating across institutions. So when you have often on, one, on a given campus one champion in student affairs who says, oh, we, aren't, we haven't yet been doing as much as we might to help students make sure get registered and be voting. Um, the, the momentum is growing by having those champions from different institutions connect with one another and share and compare ideas. And the emergence now of collaborative networks across athletic conferences or within given states, that has really helped the inertia build and helped each of us make the case at our own institutions that, you know what, I have five peers who are doing X, Y, and Z, and why don't we do at least that much at my institution and raising the bar across the board. 
Andrew, you mentioned athletic conferences, and I wonder if you could speak to the leadership that you've had with your own athletic conference um, as it relates to, you know, we, we often think about, you know, competition on the field mm -hmm. um, uh, or on the court. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, but, but, but can you talk about what work you've been doing with your athletic conference? Sure. So um, in the past few years, Bowdoin has connected with the All in Campus Democracy Challenge, which supports campuses in developing um, election engagement action plans and then looking at the data of, of how the plan has been executed and what went well and what could be better and revising the plan and going back to it uh, in an iterative process to improve that, your outcomes. Um, and the Alina folks put us in touch with my colleague at Middlebury, who I already had contact with, but Middlebury is in the same athletic conference as Bowdoin, so that we're called the NESCAC. Um, it's bunch, mostly smaller schools in New England. And we realized that we were two of the schools that were pretty attentive and energetic in, in trying to improve this work on our campuses. And by collaborating with my colleague Ashley Locks at Middlebury, um, we were able to get our two presidents to jointly issue a challenge to the other nine presidents in the NESCAC and say, you know what, what if we all had a goal together of, say, having the 11 schools in the conference raise our voter participation in the next election by 11 points? Let's see if we can get there. Let's see who can improve the most from you know, 2016 to 2020. And you know, we have models to build upon. The Big 10 is doing this, the Big 12 is doing this, um, SOCON is doing this. So um, it's, the landscape is now getting more and more populated with models to follow, and it makes it less intimidating for a new conference or a new couple of colleagues to, to enter that space and do the same thing. The theme that we, Abe and I, have talked about while being here at CLDE is that so much of this work um, is championed and is able to be institutionalized and more broadly spread when we've got presidents and provosts involved. And so the fact that you were able to leverage the power of your presidents to reach out to other, that president to president uh, a contact and outreach is so valuable. And so, you know, a lot of times we see faculty working in isolation um, on these issues. I know that I came from the University of Virginia before James Madison University as, you know, an adjunct instructor, you know, working in isolation on these issues in, in political science. Um, but when it's institutionalized, when we can get the higher ups to see the value and the vision of this, it helps to not only spread across to different universities, but also to bring together the different pockets where this work is happening. Um, Elizabeth, you brought this up, and I would love to hear from both of you about this. Um, you, you mentioned other forms of political participation, not you, that you hadn't really seen that um, in, 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 in some of your research um, later on after graduation. And for us, when we think about civic engagement, we are not just focused on voting. Um, you know, we think of it as, I call it the gateway drug to more meaningful <laughs> and deeper engagement in civic life. That we can use elections as opportunities to capture students, but we have to connect that to deeper forms of, of engagement. And I wonder you know, what, how, how you use elections and what do you see as opportunities coming up, uh, especially around a very contentious presidential election next year, and how can campuses you know, not be afraid to engage this work in this very hyper-partisan context? One of the things that's been exciting for us in our work with the American Democracy Project is that we host a range of events, uh, which include candidate 
debates and forums, as well as on, an online voter guide, in addition to candidating so people can talk one-on-one -on -one with the candidates if they still haven't made up their minds. And so that people as well, and a general meet the candidates forum at the library downtown, where folks who want to go and see everybody on the ballot in one evening can do that. And so we've seen hundreds and hundreds of people from the community come to actually figure out who's on their ballot, and then we have students help with that work. Uh, but we find that those forums actually bring out different people than our issue-based forums, even though our city council and our prosecutors might be talking during their forums and debates about the opioid epidemic, having an issue forum on the opioid epidemic in our region and bringing together people who are working in social services, in the Department of Child Services, in the prosecutor's office, uh, former convicted uh, recovering addicts, bringing them all together around the table along with activists of various sorts with different viewpoints and solutions also brought people from not just our county, but multiple counties to the table. And many people who hadn't attended the candidate forums and debates, but were intensely interested in this issue. And so we find that taking some of those election issues and really talking about those and then explaining to people how policy matters helps to bring students as well as other communities together around these shared concerns. And then to understand more how politics connect and what they can do in between. What can they do in their communities to make a difference on these issues and move the needle? Um, I think what's, done, what's where I see the most evolution right now and the curriculum at Bowdoin is that traditionally on the co-curricular side, we have approached faculty and, and suggested that being publicly engaged would involve a particular partnership with a particular organization in the community that has an unmet need that you might be able to understand and where your research would be relevant and you could help them address a problem and there would be some kind of student learning outcomes and reciprocity where you know both sides are benefiting. The, the community engaged scholarship and teaching, that partnership approach is one of many ways that faculty can, can advance student civic learning and students' democratic engagement in their courses. So now we're starting to talk about things like making sure students know how to find a bill that's uh, pending in the state legislature and maybe submit testimony about it, making sure students know about how they would participate in a, in a town board that has vacancies or being involved in community, community meetings that, you know, an interfaith forum on homelessness that it kind of grows up organically, like all these different forms of civic participation that don't require a partnership per se, but absolutely lay the groundwork for students to be engaged in a multiplicity of ways as they, after they graduate. We have Elizabeth Binion and Andrew Lardy with us. Elizabeth um, is, a, is a faculty member at a public institution. Andrew Lardy is from Student Affairs at a private institution. Um, I wonder what advice you all could share with other people that, that work within your spheres that want to engage in this work on their own campuses as being leaders, but in very different contexts. I would say the main thing is to talk to your counterparts at other colleges and, and universities. You know, find the people whose, whose situation resembles yours and who have taken some steps before yourself that you could emulate and follow in. There are always colleagues with brilliant ideas who've done, who've tackled the problems that I've tried to tackle, right? So being able to build upon someone else's 
thoughtful uh, process and their learning is better than me having to recreate the wheel over and over. And by connecting with colleagues on a national listserv or just within my own athletic conference and my sort of neighboring campuses, that has been the most powerful for giving me the ideas and tools I need and the encouragement. Absolutely, I think uh, most of my work has been collaborative and it's people who I've met at conferences like this Civic Learning and Democratic Engagement Conference who then have those shared values and that shared sense of purpose and it can make the work incredibly meaningful. The other thing for faculty members is uh, to not think of this as one more extra thing that you have to do or let it be one more extra thing that you have to do uh, because there just won't be space for it if that is something that you're doing on top of your research, teaching, and service. For me, the key has been integrating these things. And so moving toward more community-based research and research focused on these issues, uh, as well as bringing it into my teaching and bringing students into the research, um, engaging students out in the field as field workers. Uh, they really are able to do so much and they're learning those research skills. And so that's critically important and also thinking about your service in a meaningful way. I mean, there are projects that I do that then can be leverage for recognition as a service award, right? a, a research grant, and a teaching award. And that's the same project. I mean, we need to think about three for one. And there are actually ways to do this across the disciplines. But it helps to talk to peers who have done it effectively. And then also, of course, to your department chair and your dean and make sure that it's acceptable yeah. within your context, particularly if you're on a tenure track. It, and, and it's it's interesting this idea of of embedding and integrating civic learning into teaching and research and, and service. Um, Andrew, you spoke earlier about about really kind of the the STEM fields as successfully integrating this work as leaders on your campus. Absolutely. And I'm I'm one I'm curious, you know what what is the role? Because I'm I'm inspired by this idea of 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 not making it an add-on, but instead just making it a part of what we do. Um, I, I think that that's really critical and really exciting. Um, at the same time, I wonder is is it the role of the individual? faculty member or the role of the individual student affairs professional to take this on to the extent to which what is the role of institutions to support this work um, so that faculty members and student affairs professionals have sort of the leeway to, to take this on. Can one of you or both speak to that? Well, I don't know if this quite answers the question, but I want to not every institution has their curriculum built in a way where this language is in there and, 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 it's, and it's named as a learning outcome that students should be prepared for citizenship in particular ways. It might be stated in a very vague way, but not every curriculum has, the, have, has these mandates. And so when department curricula are built for the majors and you know, courses are built, like, it just magically isn't there because it wasn't being emphasized, right? And certainly I think what I've, what I've observed the most as a non-faculty member is that faculty are careful about doing the things that they are trained at and are expert at. They do not want to be put in a situation where they are vulnerable or visible at a skill set that they have not been trained at, right? 
Um, and faculty, usually in their PhD preparation or whatever, are not necessarily trained in this stuff. So all of a sudden, it's a new learning curve, and it feels like it's outside of their training, their expertise, and their fundamental purpose of their work. So it inevitably feels like an add-on until we've totally transformed higher ed. And so that's one of the things that's been exciting for us and for many campuses about the Carnegie application process. Whether or not that designation is ultimately conferred, the campus goes through a process of thinking about the infrastructure for civic education and engagement on a campus. And that is, has been a valuable way to leverage resources. So the director of our Carnegie Engagement Task Force uh, actually pitched and was approved to create a faculty fellowship program. And people are being trained to do this kind of work because they never were trained to do it in graduate school. And we also then had an active learning institute where faculty were paid to participate. And this year's theme for active learning institute was community engaged teaching. And both of those come with stipends. But we know that student engagement in the campus and community is linked to retention. And so academic affairs sees it as a good bet in when we have these performance metrics and funding systems that are now linked to performance. And performance is graduation rates and retention, right? And so there are a variety of reasons to do this kind of work, and faculty don't often fail prepared to do it, and so investing in that training for your campus can matter. We also found a rubric for identifying these courses, and through this training and having that notation, we went from five community-engaged courses to 45, and that was just in a one after one semester. So incredible once people start realizing, oh, people care that I'm doing this. The people already doing it start coming out of the woodwork and then mentoring others, and new people are trained to do it. We're on track now to have 70. So wow. it's a tremendous amount of growth once the institution says, we care about this, we want to know about it, and we're committed to helping develop it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen processes where people start coming out and sharing you know, their community-engaged work, but then you've got all these sort of different levels of community engagement and how the partnerships with the communities are different. And then as others see that it is valuable work, that it's going to be honored um, or recognized um, and wanting to adopt it with, with very good intentions, that it then places strains on the communities in which we're embedded. And oftentimes, the partnerships might just be with a few particular partners. And then we're missing some of the important um, work alongside smaller grassroots organizations um, or, or missing some of the communities that we really should be working with. So you know, I wonder how we cope with some of those challenges of adopting it and the strain that we place on the communities and how can we develop the partnerships and, 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 and both of you are working in this area. So I'm, I'm interested actually, you know, if we can talk on the record about it, you know, how you're dealing with that, those community partnerships in a way that is uh, mutually reciprocal and beneficial. One of the things that our campus is doing is that a faculty member in sociology is collecting information from all of the faculty doing this kind of work on our campus. 
about their partners and working with work-study students who are developing some terrific skills to put together this database, then she is actually talking with and interviewing uh, these community partners about their needs, but also their concerns about what they want. Do they want people who can volunteer one time for a big event? Um, would they prefer that? Is that what they have the capacity for? Or do they want interns? What would that mean? How many hours would that be? What preparation would the student need to have? You know, what are their needs? And what kind of students, what kind of skills? And that can help us match it to the right disciplines. And so she is putting together a very comprehensive database to start getting at these concerns. The other thing that's been exciting in our community in South Bend, uh, Indiana, is that the different institutions, Notre Dame and St. Mary's and Holy Cross and Bethel and Indiana University have gotten together for these breakfasts every quarter, these food for thought breakfasts, which deal with different issues and then think about, okay, who are we dealing with these issues? Who's sending students? Is there community-based research that's needed? And, and so we're trying to better coordinate our efforts. So if the University of Notre Dame already has 100 students working at this organization, and then it turns out every campus is sending people to that organization, and they're no longer even taking students unless they can volunteer a minimum of 100 hours because it's not worth it to them to train them, well, where else can we work? Where's the need that's not being met yet? And so there are more attempts to be thoughtful about that process and to identify the community needs and figure out how best to work collectively to address them. That absolutely sounds right to me. Uh, I think on our campus, one of the things that's nice is we have a lot of partnerships that are outside of academic affairs, and we can learn from our organizations, from our partner organizations, about what their needs are uh, by just asking them, you know, if, what they can imagine would be an additional uh, arm of the relationship. So if we have a student-led service club that's working weekly with uh, an organization, or we have uh, a partnership in a school with some mentoring, well, that gives us access to those folks in a way that, uh, you know, is already working in some way, but is not yet tied into the academic sphere. And if we take the time to ask them about how they might envision us doing more and doing better, then we might be able to match them with a, with a relevant faculty member. Because it is tricky for faculty to be asked to do something new, and then the, the danger is they start by envisioning a great project and try to find a partner that they can match it to, and that usually is not a great recipe. In speaking about the civic engagement movement, it was mentioned that perhaps we are um, de-emphasizing uh, the role of politics, and I wonder if you could speak to the relationship between political learning and this civic engagement movement, and sort of what what has changed, and, and what your vision is for what the role of politics should be um, in the work of a civic learning and democratic engagement um, conference. I think that a lot of university colleges and universities have preferred the term civic engagement because it seems non-political. And we also know that this generation of students has shown a preference for uh, volunteerism and that type of civic engagement over politics, almost as an alternative to politics. 
and the problem is that then you might be going to that same soup kitchen every weekend serving, never asking, why are there so many people here? What can we do at a policy level to solve this social problem? And so I think it's critical to keep the politics front and center and help connect the issues and the problems and the opportunities students care about to public policy making and to democratic governance. Universities sometimes get nervous about this because when they hear political, they think controversial, they think partisan, but it doesn't have to be that way. So in the, in the TV program that I host, we have the local legislators, we have the city council members, we have the member of Congress. There's many Republicans, Democrats, and Libertarians on as we have in our area. Because we're talking about politics doesn't mean that we're advancing the agenda of a particular political party. Similarly, with our candidate forums and debates, we're just as likely to have Libertarian and Republican candidates say, don't forget about us, <laughs> remember us, we want to be in that forum as we would for Democrats or Greens, though we seldom have a Green candidate. And so it's not about advancing a partisan agenda, it's about advancing an educated electorate, about having the discussion, having the conversation, helping people to understand their political choices and to get engaged in the process. And I think that's critically important and it's something that universities should be doing, preparing people not just for to be involved in their communities, which is incredibly important, uh, you know, that type of broad community engagement, but also political engagement, or what we sometimes call democratic engagement. And I fear that sometimes people hear that term and they picture it with a capital D, or they're afraid that somebody will, that it's democratic party engagement, which is of course not at all what we mean. We mean engagement in our democracy. Andrew, in your role at Bowdoin, you, uh, you oversee co-curricular service programs, alternative breaks, student volunteer groups. Um, you are also involved now in voter engagement. I wonder if you can speak to the role that politics p could play in, in your efforts from a student affairs background. Actually, the thing that I think is most central to our students embracing the policymaking side of civic engagement is not a program that I oversee. So I have a colleague named Tom Ancona who oversees a program called What Matters. And this is our dialogue program. And at many campuses, there's sort of a groundswell right now of deliberative dialogue programming, all different shapes and sizes, lots of different models out there. But what we observe is that students are very uncomfortable in a conversation that could get contentious. And they don't feel like they have a lot of experience or skills in grappling with um, uh, opposing viewpoints. And so they are in classes where the, the, the fundamental idea is let's compare, let's put these two ideas against each other and try to you know, analytically decide which one is superior. So there's a, a, an argumentative premise to the, the work, the, the encountering ideas in classes, and the students sometimes shrink from that. And certainly in kind of social life, when you have an alternative to talk about something that's lighter weight and less contentious, there's just not a lot of incentive to grapple with your peers with this either. So they don't have, so, they, so what we're trying to do is provide structure and a safe set of ground rules to let students hear from one another from a different points of view and get, just get practice at 
sharing their point of view on an issue that might be loaded, and also get practice with the art of listening and openness and realize that there can be a lot of value when folks have heard one another and humanized the opposing viewpoint when sometimes they have never encountered somebody who they respected who had an opposing viewpoint. So that's where we're trying to build the skills and the openness so that students can say, you know what, this is a safe arena for me to enter into. Maybe I do want to get have a conversation about this policy. It's interesting because I wonder where these types of conversations can happen. Mm -hmm. And and if, if they can't happen on a college campus, mm -hmm. where do we see that type of engagement? Certainly not on most social media sites these days, which has just become such a polarized atmosphere. Not only does Google give us different searches, search results based on what they think we want to see, but our social media feed becomes reinfor a reinforcing echo chamber. And to the extent that people do engage in online conversations with uh, people with whom they disagree, <laughs> there are less conversations than they are uh, a, a, a battle, uh, not even a battle of wits, just a, a, an exchange of insults quite frequently. And sure. so uh, where is the space that people learn respectful deliberation? And I think you're right, Abe, and we also have to create that space on our campuses uh, until it's reflected in civil society writ large. I think one of the things about the deliberative pedagogy versus debate, right, or the positioning in what social media does is that it only tends to reinforce our own points of view, right, and instantiate those, our own biases, whereas when we can adopt these deliberative pedagogies, it promotes the more open-minded, uh, can promote a more open-minded approach and an opportunity to change minds or at least empathize with the other, with another's perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, and and that is what is just desperately missing, and I don't know how we can get to the point of not only having these conversations on campuses, but affecting broader change. Uh, one of the things I worry about is that when we're teaching our students these skills of deliberative dialogue and information literacy, right, that we can also be instantiating inequalities between people who have access to our institutions and people who are outside of our institutions. That's why I'm so excited about the Civic Leadership Academy model that we've developed on our campus so the students are involved in setting up the academy, but we invite speakers from the community and we, then we invite the whole community and open this up so that people can learn a variety of skills, whether it's talking with decision makers, and then we have local, state, and national decision makers there to answer questions, or how does the policy making process work and where can I get involved? And we'll have people at the local, state, and national levels there. And then we'll have activists. How can I protest safely and effectively if I feel like nobody's listening? What is fake news? How do I spot it? How do I stop spreading it? Uh, what are these common rhetorical devices that politicians use to mislead me? How can I uh, engage in critical thinking? So we don't we talk about logical fallacies in our critical thinking classes, but then we also do that in Civic Leadership Academy for folks who maybe didn't have that background. I mean, I never had a course in that in college or graduate school. So. 
Uh, you know, I just think uh, one of the things we can do as institutions of higher education is to educate the community as a whole. And then that also sets up a model for our students to recognize that that's part of what they can do throughout their lives mm -hmm. is uh, work to educate others and also be educated by their fellow citizens. And so it's wonderful. And we learn so much from the people who come and their questions, and then some of them become panelists and set the agenda for future Civic Leadership Academy sessions. And so I think we absolutely have to bring this outside of our classrooms. And uh, we need tuition dollars. There's no doubt about that. But we also want to be modeling the kind of engagement and stewardship that we're teaching students about. And so uh, George Mahaffey, uh, founder of the American Democracy Project, often talks about being a stewardive place. And I think this is part of what that means. I absolutely want to echo the idea that information literacy and media literacy, I think, is a central uh, plank of being able to help students do better and feel more empowered and less overwhelmed and confused by the information landscape as they move through their days. Um, so many of them, you know, just want to shut off their phone if they're going to, you know, if if the, if the decision is to be engaged in an unhealthy way or to not be engaged, they'd rather just be unengaged. And we have to find a way to help them say, help them identify useful sources of information, ways to kind of separate the wheat from the chaff and not be overwhelmed or just utterly uh, turned inside out by the, the kinds of messages that are coming at them. And I think the Civic Leadership Academy model that Indiana is launching is a great one for other campuses to consider adopting. We have videos of all of our sessions up online so folks can go and look at those and uh, uh, adopt the model. And uh, Send me an email and let me know what you're doing. We already had a couple other campuses take the model and all the bullet points and hold them in pubs and cafes across their community. Uh, so it's a, it's a nice, uh, easy thing to do and allows you to identify people in your community who are civic educators, even if they don't work for the university. Also, I was excited to see Mike Caulfield up on stage here at the Civic Learning and Democratic Engagement Conference in Fort Lauderdale because the digital polarization or digipo effort that the American democracy uh, has launched is a wonderful resource that people can access for free and learn about those civic media literacy skills and what Mike sometimes calls his four moves uh, and how to really detect this fake news that we're terrible at. I mean, it, it might be embarrassing to university professors, but when you have an Ivy League university, professors and students doing worse with way more time in detecting fake news and fake websites than your professional fact checkers, you know that some of the traditional models we're using aren't applicable. But there are some quick and easy skills to learn that can make a difference. And it's wonderful that this is a resource that's accessible, not just to people in the ADP network, but anybody who can use the internet and access these materials online. So that's really exciting, I think, what we're doing to try to create these open access resources to the public. And part of what we need to do is, you know, podcasts like, like this to get the news out. Right. <laughs> and same thing with Flipside, another one of these newer tools that is, you know, free subscription and it gives, they have a lot of uh, smart people every day processing all the new news feeds and breaking it down into a, a very concise point counterpoint from each side that an individual can just, you know, get in the morning, read it for a few minutes over your coffee and consider the merits of the two different sides in a way that is not supercharged. There's no crazy scroll across the bottom of the screen. You don't have to subject yourself to 45 minutes of, of uh, cable news to be able to get a sense of the landscape of ideas that are out there at a given day. 
a question that we ask everybody that is willing to come and, and, and sit with us. And I really appreciate you all um, being here with us and having this wonderful conversation um, is, and, and I'd, we'd like you both to address, what would you do to strengthen democracy? Uh, for me to, to strengthen democracy, I think the main thing would be to invest heavily in K-12 education. Because it's one thing sometimes for folks uh, to think that, oh, we just need generational change and for certain antiquated ideas and, you know, folks who grew up with toxic masculinity and, you know, just etched into their minds, those folks just need to kind of like move out of the electorate and then all, the, all of us wise woke folks will be here to, to live in harmony together. The fact is our culture is massively fragmented and a lot of uh, dangerous uh, ideas and behaviors that we thought were extinct are clearly not. And unless we are educating little teeny weeny kids very well, providing families with pre-K, taking care of kids, dental checkups in the schools, paying teachers fair wages so that it's a competitive profession that, want, that attracts you know, inspired people, um, we're gonna continue to fail at John Dewey's mandate to uh, reinvest in the, in the upcoming generation. And it's gonna cost us for decades down the line. So for me, the main thing would be invest heavily in K-12 or pre-K-12. Absolutely, pre-K to 16 uh, and beyond. I, we need people who understand and are committed to democratic institutions and who are committed to being part of the political process and uh, to being active members of their communities, working collectively to contribute and make the lives of those around them better. And you're not gonna have that if people don't have the knowledge, skills, and attitudes required to sustain a healthy democracy. And so that has to start early and become part of people's identity that what they are and how they see themselves is as members, active members of the society. And that's just critical. Something we talk about about quite a bit is this idea of creating an inclusive democracy. And I think just this idea of, of starting young and making these opportunities available to everybody um, is, is critical. Our school did some TEDx style talks and they wanted conversations about memory as the first set of talks and so I gave a talk about childhood memories and civic identity formation and I think it's critical that it's happening in the schools but also to whatever extent possible in the home whether it is parents or aunts uncles foster parents mentors uh, to have it happening both inside and outside of the school and it can be small things um, taking your children to the polls with you on election day so they know this is what we do, we're voters, and of course we're at the polls every election cycle. But also using public spaces, attending public events, and talking about how fortunate we are to have this beautiful park, um, bringing them to the celebration of the 150th anniversary of the founding of South Bend, right? We created our 150 wood pile. Our wood pile now reads vote from the last municipal election, right? All these symbolic things that you can do to develop a sense of civic identity in children that is fun and easy, but continually reinforces this identity. 
an issue is that it needs to be for everybody. And so not all parents have the training skills or uh, are able to draw upon their own experiences to create those type of experiences uh, for their children. And that's why it really does take a village and we need mentors and community centers and civic leaders who will step in as well to help forge that sense of shared civic identity. Elizabeth Benyon, Andrew Lardy, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Matters today. Thank you. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by the talented and tenacious Leah Jackson, a senior in the School of Media Arts and Design at James Madison University. Our digital guru, Randy Budnickus, director of digital marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the Madison Center online at jmu.edu civic. Until next time.